0: Well good morning. Christ is risen and soon to be born. This this is the Christian calendar. I I I um always enjoy worshiping with, with you at Sanctuary, and I wanted to start today by by thanking you for that. I mean, I've been a part of this community now for a little more than three years, and some of you think it's ten times that long, I'm sure. But it is a gift to my family and to me, and I, I appreciate it, and I'm grateful for all the friendships that, that God has woven together here. One of the things I love about worshiping with sanctuary is following the rhythms of that Christian year and the, the calendar, and that this time of of Advent, of waiting, is important. I saw a great tweet the other day that about, some, it was a retweet of someone saying, Merry Christmas, and then the tag was, the war on Advent continues. Because of Advent, of course, is about waiting for Christmas, and that as Christians we're not just people of Christmas, but of that time before Christmas comes. Obviously, you didn't find the tweet nearly as entertaining as I did, <laughs> but that I mean, this isn't it. Isn't just about Christmas, right? It's about the time before Christmas as well, and part of the richness of being people who attend to the whole of Scripture and the whole of the Christian calendar is that we understand that there are rhythms and gives and takes ups and downs, ins and outs, in the way that God engages our life, and that the waiting can be joyful too. And So I, I hope you have a Merry Christmas, and I hope you have a Merry Advent, a Happy Advent, and, and I hope that we can be the kind of people who can live in all, all of that rhythm. Years ago, Stanley Hauerwas, who I quote often, he's been a huge influence on me, he was asked a, a rather stupid question. He was asked, what's the one difficulty the one temptation facing the American church in the 21st century, the most, most threatening temptation. Now, it's a, t- it's a stupid question because, of course, there isn't just one temptation. It's too simplistic. But Howas gave a typically provocative response, and he said sentimentalism. And I remember the first time I heard it, however many years ago, how startled I was by it because that's not the answer I would have given, and it's not the answer I expected him to give or I would have expected anyone to give. But the more that I've thought about it over time, the more I think it, it is getting at something. That there is a way in which American Christianity, the Christianity that you and I have known at least, it can be pretty easily sentimentalized. And what I mean by that is it can be kind of emotionally self-indulgent and a way of evading reality in which we kind of are always talking in ways that are a little bit guilt-edged and never actually truthful about what's happening in the world. And so we're, we're always celebrating how good God is, but we're never talking about the ways in which that goodness doesn't seem to really touch our lives sometimes. And we can we can hide behind pious language in which it sounds like we love God and we love people and we're trying to live a Christian life, but we're not we're not really letting the the truth be spoken to us, and we're not we're not speaking it either in prayer or in witness to one another. and And I, I want to grapple with that this morning. I want I want to talk about Christmas in ways that kind of. Pushes through in any sentimentality. And one of, the, one of the ways in which I want to do that is by talking about the story of Doubting Thomas. When I was looking at the, the calendar, looking at the lectionary, I, I realized that tomorrow is actually the feast day for Thomas, Doubting Thomas. And I, I find that so wise, that the church, in this season of Christmas in which we're waiting on the birth of Christ and the silent night and the holy night, that the church reminds us to look at this doubter in the midst of this. So we don't sentimentalize what's happening here. It isn't just a beautiful, quiet moment in a stable. There, there are difficulties, and, and there are doubts deep in us. And you've all, you're all sensitive enough to know that for many people, Christmas is a very difficult time because of what's happened in their families and what's happened in their personal life. But Christmas is also a difficult time for people of faith because it's, it's a time in which our faith should be rich and strong. But the truth is, for many of us, it just isn't for whatever reason. Even if we want it to be, it isn't. And I, I, I think turning to Thomas's story can help us be truthful about what this season is and isn't. And in the readings for Thomas's day, we also read about Habakkuk, the prophet, who's in some ways a, an anticipation of Thomas. So I want us to read these, these two stories and reflect for a bit about what it means to wait for Christ to come, what it means for wait wait for Christ to be with us now, but in unsentimental ways. In ways that are truthful and honest. So John twenty, twenty four. Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the marks of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Now, this is completely irrelevant to the sermon, but I have to share it with you. So in the, in the churches that I grew up in, there was a style of preaching in which these, these preachers would memorize old texts from 1800 and early 1900 preachers that were often in King James. And these preachers would memorize those texts and then preach them in our services. And one time, I could name the man, I won't, I don't know if you know who he is or not, but he was doing this and he was preaching this text. But then in his sermon he said, Thomas, he had Jesus saying, Thomas, reach forth thy hand and thrust it into my cleavage. Because in Old English, that's just a wound, right? That's just a wound. So I never read this text. No matter how moving and powerful it is, I never read this text without thinking of that sermon, and I'm going to inflict you with that now. <laughs> you will never hear this sermon again, uh, in this, this text, the same way again. And I don't know how he, he said it, that, that preacher that day, and you know, all of us, I was a teenager at the time, of course, we all giggled, and he lost it. He, the service ended. <laughs> he didn't get past that point, which may happen to me right now. So Jesus says, put your finger here, put it in my side, do not doubt but believe. Thomas answered him and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. And then the story of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. So first, the story of Thomas. We all know him as Doubting Thomas. And I don't think we should do away with it. I like calling him Doubting Thomas. I like this about him. I like that he's a doubter. The first time we see Thomas in the Gospel, we get a glimpse of his character. And I think it helps explain the kind of doubt we see later in the story. The first time we see Thomas... Jesus has decided to go up to Jerusalem, actually to Bethany, but near Jerusalem. And Thomas knows that there are enemies there and that they intend to kill Jesus. And in fact, of course, we know that they eventually do kill Jesus. But Thomas, knowing that they're going into that kind of, that kind of difficult situation, says, let us go with him and die with him. And so he's, he's unflinching. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. If it means we're going to die, we're going to die. Let's go with him and die. And that's, that's our first image of Thomas and then we see him again later just after Jesus has given a a teaching to his disciples in which he said I'm going to go away and I'm going to go and prepare a place for you that where I am you may be too and you know the way and then there's this awkward silence and they're side-eyeing each other because the disciples don't know the way but they don't want to say that they don't know the way and in that awkward silence Thomas speaks up and says wait a minute I don't know the way you've not shown us how could we know the way And I love this about Thomas because what it shows you is that he's courageous enough not only to go and die with Jesus, he's courageous enough to ask the stupid question. right? To say, you're saying we know, but we don't know. And I at least know that I don't know, and I'm gonna say that. So I love this about Thomas. And when we come to his, his story at the end, the story in which he gets his name as Doubting Thomas, I think we need to see that this is a man of courage and a man who's willing to ask the questions no one wants to ask. And so... When the disciples tell him, we have seen the Lord, Thomas, in perfect keeping with his character, says, I don't know. I've been with you guys a while. I know how easy it is for you to get deceived. You've been wrong about a lot of things. Unless I see him, unless I put my hands in the wounds, unless I know it's him, I'm not going to believe it. Now, it's, it's, it's easy to make a couple of mistakes here. One mistake would be to downplay the seriousness of the doubt. To make, to make doubt good in and of itself. Another mistake would be to dismiss the doubt as necessarily evil. Both of those are mistakes. The truth is, Thomas was in some ways right to doubt. Thomas Aquinas, who's a medieval theologian, in his commentary on this passage says this first. Thomas was right to question the witness of the disciples. Not only because he knew the disciples, but because scripture says, test the spirits to see whether they are of God, and in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every truth be established. So Thomas was right to say, Wait a minute, I know what you're saying, but I need to see more. Right? So he wasn't wrong to doubt. That, that wasn't wrong in and of itself. But the doubting isn't, also isn't good in and of itself. The goal isn't to be doubters. The goal is to be the kind of people whose doubt opens out on encounter with Jesus, whose doubt opens out on faith. And what happens with Thomas is that his doubt becomes stubborn at some point. And so Aquinas says, the problem is not where his doubt began, but what happened to his doubt along the way. So I I think it's important that we own that. Then we, we see that he is not with the disciples that night of Easter, and we don't know why. And he's just not there when Jesus shows up. And so when the disciples tell him we've seen the Lord, and he says, no, I'm not sure if I believe it or not, I think it's easy for us to think that Thomas is, is, part of his problem is that he's distancing himself from his fellow disciples. But we know that's not right, because the text goes on to say, and the next week, they were all gathered together, and the doors were shut. And I, I love this about Thomas, that even though he had his doubts, and even though he was not ready to take their word for it, he kept showing up with them that he didn't cut himself off from them even though he had questions about their witness. And I love about the other disciples that they didn't cut him off. I think I know some communities where they would never have allowed Thomas back in. Once he had said, I won't believe unless I see... They don't want that kind of doubt around them, and they would have distanced themselves from Thomas. And I know a lot of people like Thomas who, because they don't trust other people, they don't know how to worship with them or how to live with them and how to have life together. And what I love about these original disciples in this moment is Thomas has his doubts, but he's still with them. He still shows up, and they let him show up. And this is, I think, such a beautiful picture of what Christian community is. It's a bunch of people showing up together, some of them doubting and some of them believing. That's that's what it is. It's it's you and me showing up over and over and over again, some of us in faith and some of us in not quite faith. Some of us sure of what God is doing and some of us not so sure of what God is doing. Some of us living a life that feels victorious and some of us living a life that feels defeated. And we just keep showing up together and making sure that we keep showing up together, trusting that in the midst of all this that we're experiencing, God is acting. And that we belong together in the midst of this. And so Thomas shows up with them and then Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he says immediately to all of them gathered, peace be with you. I wonder what we would expect him to say. That here's Jesus after his resurrection, appearing to his disciples. I think there are some of us who would expect Jesus to immediately tell them to get to work. Go and make disciples. But that's not his first word to them. He does say that to them, but not first. The first word to them is peace. That before he drives them out into ministry, he settles them. Just Be at peace, except that I'm here with you and you're here with each other and that I I want you here with each other. And only after he's spoken peace to all of them does he turn to Thomas and give Thomas exactly what Thomas had demanded. And he says, Thomas, here, see my wounds. Touch my wounds. Do not doubt, but believe. And notice Jesus does not rebuke him for having doubted. He doesn't say, you were wrong to doubt. He gives him what he asked for. You want to touch me, touch me. You need to see my wounds? See them. And then Jesus says, you believe because you've seen, but more blessed are those who believe and have not seen. So the oddity is, and this is hard for us to hear, the oddity is we are in a better position than Thomas because we have not seen. You remember what Thomas says to the disciples originally is, I, I have to see him. I have to touch his wounds. I, I, don't, I don't want to hear your witness. And yet what Jesus goes on to teach Thomas is, the witness of other disciples is greater. We are more blessed to have the gospel of John and the preaching of the gospel of John than to have had that experience that Thomas had. Now, in some ways, I know that's terribly disappointing. You came this morning expecting to encounter God, and you got Pastor Brent and me and Paul Right? That's a serious letdown. And yet Jesus says it isn't. He says it isn't, that this is more blessed. That in the mysterious ways of God, faith is only possible under these conditions. This kind of faith is only possible under these conditions, in which he gives us one another as his way of being with us. And yet, while we insist that we are better off than Thomas because we can rely upon one another, we also have to be careful not to dismiss Thomas or deride him. And I love calling Thomas Doubting Thomas, not because I want to throw emphasis on his sin, but because I want to throw emphasis on the way that I need his doubt. Let me go back to Thomas Aquinas again, medieval theologian, in his commentary on this passage. He says, quoting Gregory the Great, who's 500 years before him as a theologian in the tradition, he says, God did more good through the doubt of Thomas for us than through the faith of the other disciples. Now, now think about that. 1,500 years ago, a pope, Gregory the Great, says, it was better for us that Thomas doubted. We got, God did more good for you and me through the doubt of that disciple than through the belief of the others. Now, think about the wisdom that there and what that would do to us if we understood that sometimes the greatest good God does in my life comes through someone else's weakness, through someone else's failure, through someone else's doubt. And that I have to be the kind of person who leaves room for that in the community. Who knows when I might need Thomas's doubt. And that that doubt might do more good for me than Peter or Andrew or John's belief. That we have this story because Thomas doubted. There's this old legend in the Apostles' Creed that we, that we say. There's this old legend that each one of the statements comes from one of the apostles. So in all of those accounts. Peter is the one who says, he's the first one to speak because he's the first of the apostles, and he says, we believe in God. And almost all of the others change. The only other one that's always consistent is Thomas is always the apostle who says, we believe in the resurrection. And I love that because it's only because he's doubting it that he's able to have it confirmed. And you see the ways in which that just explodes, sentimentalism and naivete and simplicity, that the one who forever will witness to the resurrection of Christ most forcefully is the first one who doubted it, who asked the hard question, who owned for himself and for his brothers and sisters, I don't believe it yet. And yet now, for 2,000 years, Thomas has been the primary witness to Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And that's the only way forward. That's the only way forward. as John, Father John Bear says, the church is not here to proclaim life. The church is here to proclaim life through death. And if we're only talking about life, we're kidding ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. We're evading reality. The truth is, life only comes through death. And genuine faith only comes through doubt that's overcome in encounter with the Lord. And we have to be the kind of community that leaves room for that. If we don't do that, then all, we're ha- all we have is Propaganda. All we have is naivete, not faith. Faith only comes on the other side of asking the questions everyone is afraid to ask and trusting that God will respond, that there is some kind of answer. And so Aquinas says this. He's playing on the fact that Thomas's name can mean depth or abyss. The abyss of Christ's compassion calls to the depths of darkness in Thomas. And Thomas's abyss of unwillingness calls out, in his profession, to the depths of Christ. And at this point, he quotes the psalm, Deep Calls Out to Deep. And he says, the deep, the depths of Christ's faithfulness are speaking to the depths of of Thomas's lack of faith. And the deep is calling to deep. And then he says, it was in the plans of the divine mercy that by feeling the wounds in the flesh of his teacher, the doubting disciples should heal in us the wounds of disbelief. It was in the divine mercy that, Thomas' needing to touch the wounds of Jesus. That doubt in Thomas would work for us the healing of doubt. Malcolm Guite, who's an Anglican poet and theologian, has written a sonnet for St. Thomas that I think cuts right to the quick. We do not know. How can we know the way? Courageous master of the awkward question. That's how he describes Thomas. You spoke the words the others dared not say and cut through their evasion and abstraction. O doubting Thomas, father of my faith, you put your finger on the nub of things. We cannot love some disembodied wraith, but flesh and blood must be our king of kings. Your teaching is to touch, embrace, anoint, feel after him and find him in the flesh. Because he loved your awkward counterpoint, the word has heard and granted you your wish. Oh, place my hands with yours. Help me divine the wounded God whose wounds are healing mine. Place my hands with yours. Teach me to doubt in this kind of way, Thomas, that opens out on a a revelation of who God is. And when Guy writes those last lines, he has in mind, I think, the painting, Caravaggio's painting of the incredulity of Thomas, which is one of the famous images in, in, in Christian tradition of art, in which we see Jesus and Thomas and the other disciples. And one of the things I love about it is that you can see Jesus guiding Thomas's hand into his wound. Jesus' hand is on Thomas' wrists and gently pressing it into Jesus' wound, into the sides, the wound in his side. And I love this because it, it gets right at the ways in which Jesus is not put off by Thomas's doubt. Jesus is not angered by it. Jesus is not holding Thomas at arm's length, but is drawing him in and saying, you want to see my wounds? Here's my wound. Touch it. And I love the look on Thomas's face. I don't know if you can see it well enough to make it out. But it's a look of incredulity. And that what's happened in this moment is is he's gone from one kind of disbelief to another. So there's the kind of disbelief that says, I don't know about that. And then there's another kind that says, that's so amazing, I can't believe it. And Thomas has passed from one kind of disbelief into another. He is truly disbelieving because it is too glorious for him. He's incredulous at the goodness of God. And that's what comes when we have a genuine encounter with God. We move out of one kind of disbelief into another. God is this good that I can't believe it. And that's what's happened to Thomas in this moment. God is so good, I can't articulate it. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it can't even enter into our heart, the things God has prepared for us. And Thomas has this moment of experience in which his mind is blown, he's blown away by what God has done and what God is doing. But my favorite part of this painting is not Thomas or Jesus, but the other two disciples. Do You see what's happening here? They're, They're peeking in. They're leaning over the shoulders of Jesus and Thomas to see what's taking place. And this is, for me, an image of what Christian community looks like when it's lived authentically, in which people are always peering in on what God is doing between us. That Thomas's doubt makes this response from Jesus possible for the sake of those other two disciples who were afraid to let their doubts go. But they can watch what happens. They can watch the way Jesus responds to Thomas. And you can see how engrossed they are. They, want to, they need to see the wounds too. They just needed someone to lead the way. They needed someone to say what they were afraid to say. And this is the kind of community we have to be. The kind of community who are willing to let our doubts go. Let them get said. Let our fears and our anxieties get said. Let our questions get asked because there are people who are looking over our shoulders waiting to see, will we ask those questions and how will God respond? And if we're going to be a community of truthfulness and not of naivete and sentimentality, we have to be the kind of community where those questions get asked and we wait on the Lord to answer them in ways that everybody can look in on. And that brings me to the prophet Habakkuk, 700 years before Thomas, who also has some hard questions to ask in fact, he's even more confrontational. He is complaining against God. The, the prophecy opens, Habakkuk is protesting, lamenting God's inaction. It opens in this way. "O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? You will not listen. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Think about this. This is, this is the prophet speaking to God in accusation. I'm calling and you're not answering. You call yourself the Savior, but these people need saving and there's no saving being done. How long are you going to let this stand? And then God responds. Look. Look at the nations and see. Be astonished. Be astounded. I will do a work in your days. In your day you would not believe, though, what we're told to you. And that sounds wonderful. When I was in Bible school one semester, we had a theme. Be astonished. Be astounded. I will do a work in your days you would not believe. And, of course, we wrote that up on an ugly T-shirt because that's what you do when you're in Christian school. But we didn't go on to read that this is not a promise, this is a threat. He's not saying, I'm about to do something wonderful in your day. It's, I'm about to do the worst destructive act you've ever seen. You wouldn't believe how bad it's going to be. Maybe that was predictive and we didn't know it. And this is what God's response is. You want to see, see me act? I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, who are the most wicked people on the face of the earth, and I'm going to destroy everybody else with them, starting with Israel. And Habakkuk's response is terrific. It's not pious, well, you're God and I'm not. It's, well, then who are you, God? If you're going to do that, what kind of God are you? I can't tell the difference between you and our enemy. I can't tell the difference between you and the enemy. If you're going to act like this, what kind of God are you? Now, if we don't have the stomach for that kind of conversation, then we're not faithfully biblically Christian. Because that is the way the prophets have to speak to God and the way the apostles have. This is what we're seeing that they understand if God is saying this, we have to respond in this way. If you're going to just raise up the most wicked people on the face of the earth to destroy everybody else, because you can do that, what kind of God, what's your character really like? And then he breaks off. God does not answer Habakkuk. Habakkuk breaks off. And then Habakkuk speaks to us. He speaks to Israel. And he says, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Now, here's faithfulness that's come out the other side of doubt. Here's faith that's been stripped of all sentimentality. He's saying, I don't understand what God is doing. I don't know why God isn't acting and why God is acting in these ways. But I trust his character. And so I'm going to look and wait until I see what he's doing. It's the opposite of Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah? God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell them, in 40 days I will overthrow it. And Jonah says, heck no. I know what you're like. And he runs in the other direction. And you know how that doesn't go so very well for him. He ends up being spit out and goes in by the fish goes into the city says 40 days God will overthrow Nineveh the people repent he goes up on the hill overlooking the city and says God I told you this is what you would do because I know you and I know that even though you said you were going to destroy these people if I told them that they would repent and if they repented you would relent and you would forgive them because you're you're a God who always remembers mercy in the midst of wrath and I don't want them to be forgiven I knew this would happen and it did Well, that's exactly what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, God, I know you're saying you're going to raise up these wicked people to destroy everyone else, but I know you, and I know that that can't be all you're going to say, so I'm going to get to the watchtower, and I'm going to watch for what you're sending to me because you're going to say something more. And reading this passage this week, I was so deeply convicted that he goes to the watchtower. He's just been told that God is raising up this enemy to bring against his people. And he goes to the watchtower, which is where you go to see the enemy coming. But when he goes to the watchtower, he doesn't look for the enemy. He looks for God. And I wonder how many of us right now are in the watchtower, but we're looking for the enemy instead of looking for God. We are looking for what we're afraid is coming instead of looking for the one who who makes it so that we do not have to fear. Habakkuk knows God has said he's sending the enemy, but he doesn't look for the enemy. He says, I'm looking for the word that God is going to speak because I know in spite of the judgment that he's threatened, he's going to speak another word of gospel, and I'm waiting on that word. I'm waiting on that word. And this is what faithfulness looks like. It, it, it It means that I don't look for the enemy. I look for the one who's going to reconcile me to my enemy, that no matter what is threatening me, I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at the one who's at work in the midst of all this to bring good out of evil. And this applies at every level. This is why, again, there's nothing to fear for us. Is the enemy coming? Yes. In every possible way, that's true. The enemy is coming, but we don't look at the enemy. We're not in the watchtower anticipating the evil that's coming. We're in the watchtower anticipating the one who is greater than everyone that's against us and anything that's against us. How can we be afraid? And so Habakkuk says, I'm going to look. For this. And so God answers him and says, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Here's another great irony. Scripture is filled with great irony. His response, God's response to Habakkuk is, write the vision down. And guess what? Habakkuk doesn't. We have no record of the vision. We have no idea what the vision was. What we're given in Scripture is not the vision, but the promise that there will be a vision. This is exactly like this in Luke 24. Jesus meets two disciples, probably a man and a wife, on their way home after the resurrection. And the Bible says that he told them everything that the Scripture said about him, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. But then we're not told any of what he actually said to them, just that he said everything that could be said. Because this is the way God works with us. He wants us to live by faith, which means he doesn't give us the vision. He gives us the confidence that the vision will come when it needs to come. And so he says to Habakkuk, I'm going to give you this plain vision, a vision that's for its day, and it will not delay. And then we get no glimpse of it. We only get the glimpse of the man who trusts God will give us what we need when we need it. I wonder if we, if we recognize that. If some of us aren't trying to demand The vision instead of the confidence in the one who gives the vision. that We we want assurances from God instead of learning to trust the character of God. And this is what leads, I think, to this, this fundamental insight of Habakkuk, the one that we see play out in the story of Thomas. God says to Habakkuk, look at the proud. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous shall live by their faith. We often think in binaries, we often think that faith is the opposite of doubt. But what God is showing Habakkuk is that faith is not the opposite of doubt. Faith is opposed to pride. But there are two kinds of people in Israel in in Habakkuk's day. The proud and the faithful. The proud and the faithful. And here's what it comes down to. The proud are people who see what's happening in the world and trust that they understand what's happening. And faithful people are people who see what's happening in the world and trust that God is doing something they can't see, and so they don't trust their interpretation of it. Pride is believing that I know what's going on in my life and in yours and in the world. Faith is, I have no idea what's going on in my life or your life or the world, but I know the one who is acting, and so I trust that he means good for you. That when I watch the news or have a conversation with my friends or I'm sick or some temptation is coming against me, if I'm proud, I think I know what that means. If I'm a person of faith, I know I don't know what that means, but I trust that in spite of my not knowing what it means, God is at work for my good and the good of my neighbor. And this is what God wants you to see. If you want to live and not die, then live by faith. Stop trusting that you know what's going on. You don't, but I'm at work. This is what Paul tells his churches. Do not look at the things that can be seen, but look at what cannot be seen. Paul, that doesn't make any sense. You can't look at what can't be seen. By definition, if it can't be seen, I can't look at it. But that's what faith is. Faith is saying, I'm going to see what can't be seen. Because I trust the character of the one who's doing what only God can do. And that means I never trust what I'm seeing. Because what I'm seeing isn't real compared to what God is doing to it. Now, this isn't naivety. I'm not denying what's happening. That's the problem of sentimentalism. Sentimentalism says there is no sickness. There is no death. There is no betrayal. There is no terrorism. There is no corruption. But faith says, yes, there's sickness. But there's a healer who heals me even if I die from this sickness. Somehow that's true, that there is death, and we mourn, but we don't mourn hopelessly because we believe there's one who's come out the other side of death and that someday he will conquer death so that death has no sting. We say all of that. We're kidding ourselves if we say there's no corruption, If there's no betrayal, there's no injustice. But in faith, we can say, in spite of the corruption, in spite of betrayal, in spite of injustice, God will have the last word, and I trust that, and I live on that, and therefore I'm not afraid, and therefore I'm not bitter, therefore I'm not angry, because I know, I know that God will have the last word. God's acts aren't done, and when God has done everything God is gonna do, we will all see that God is good. We'll all rejoice in what God has accomplished, and until then, I'm not gonna trust what I'm seeing. And I'm not going to let fear or anger or resentment overwhelm me because of what I think I'm seeing because I trust that God is acting. And this is where Habakkuk ends his prophecy. He ends with a hymn. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Now, let me, let me interrupt myself and Habakkuk to say what he doesn't mean. He's not saying whether good comes or evil comes, I'll accept it because it's from God. This is not fatalism. This is not saying God is God and I'm not, so whatever God does to me, I have to like it. That's not what he means. What he means is whether things go well in my life or things go badly, I trust that God is acting in a way that means that that's not final. So if, if, there, if the fig tree blossoms, good, I'll eat the figs. If the fig tree does not blossom, I trust that God is good and that when everything is said and done, I'll know that, I'll see that. And if there's no fruit on the vine and no produce in, in the olive and the fields yield no food, in the midst of that, I will go on saying, I trust God's goodness. And when all is said and done, God's goodness will win. I'm not thankful that the olive fails I'm thankful in spite of the olive failing because I know the God who can bring life out of death, who can bring victory out of defeat, who can bring joy out of sorrow, and I trust that. And so here's what it looks like to be people who are not sentimentalists at Christmas and Advent. We understand this world is broken and shot through with, with wickedness. We understand that our own lives are broken and shot through with wickedness. We understand these things. We don't deny them. We don't pretend that they're not true. But we also don't let them drive us to fear. Because we understand we don't live by what we can see. Whether the fig tree blossoms or not, it doesn't matter. We trust the God who brings life out of death. So whatever comes, comes. Let it come. It won't have the last word. There's no room for fear and anxiety in our life. Not because we're denying the reality of the brokenness of the world, but because we trust God's goodness more than we trust what we see about the brokenness of the world. We recognize we're all going to die. But there is one who has conquered death, and he will have the last word about our death too. And so we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear our doubts either. Because if I, if I have doubt, this is the way Paul will say it, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And the truth is my salvation is not resting on my faithfulness, but on his faithfulness to me. I don't need to fear my doubts. If I just bring them to him and say, listen, this is what's going on in me. I can trust he knows how to heal that in me and in you. We have nothing to fear. So this year in Advent, as we prepare for Christmas, I want us to live this way. Get in your watchtower and look not for all the evil that's coming. Look at the God who's going to speak. And whatever you see happening, don't trust that finally. Whether you think the future is bright or dark is not the point. The future is, is all we can see of the future is what seems to be happening based upon what the world is like. But the future we want is the future only God can make that can't come from what's happening in the world right now. I don't want to trust the light that I think I see or the darkness that I think I see because I want to see the light of God, which is Utterly different from the light that I see or the darkness that I see. So, whether you're talking about your own life, your family, you're thinking in huge terms about international politics, don't trust what you think you see. Live by faith. Live by faith. And whether the fig tree blossoms or not, God will be your strength. And He will make, as He says, He will make my feet like the feet of a deer and make me tread upon the heights. We can be people of joy, not because we're kidding ourselves about what's happening in the world, but precisely because we know there is a God who makes life from death. He makes life from death. There's nothing to fear. Let me pray, and then the pastor's going to come and lead us to the table. God, thank you for this word that you speak to us through Thomas and Habakkuk. Help us to be the kind of people who, who voice what we need to voice and make room for others to voice what they need to voice. And show us, as you did, Thomas and Habakkuk, what it means to live by faith. Not naive faith, not sentimental faith, but genuine faith that's passed through death and come into the life that you mean for us. And Let us experience that joy, the, the mature depths of joy that come when we don't trust what we see. But we trust that we are seen and that what you're doing in the world is greater than we could ask or imagine. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.